Hello and welcome to the Harvard EdCast, a series of conversations with thought leaders in the field of education from across the country and around the world. I'm your host, Matt Weber, and today we're lucky to have the director of the Cornell Institute for Translational Research of Aging. His name is Carl Pillemer, and he's also the author of the book, 30 Lessons for Living, Tried and True Advice from the Wisest Americans. We're in for a treat. Welcome to the EdCast, Carl. Oh, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Carl, now, where do you find the wisest Americans, and what makes them so wise? It's a really good question, and I'll tell you, the best way I can answer it is one of the things I've gotten to do as an otherwise stodgy college professor um, is write a blog on the Huffington Post, and I finally received evidence that someone other than my immediate family is reading it when I got a comment from a college professor who said, you know, I learn everything I need to know from my students. I think that young people are the wisest Americans. Why do you say the oldest people are? Uh, and so I'd say, you know, the wisest Americans I call are those people who've simply lived their lives. Um, and what they have is developmentally, they, um, we know from developmental psychology that older people regulate their emotions better that they often make better choices and surveys show they're happier than younger people. So I wanted to know, could we take that advice and distill it and make it available for younger people? So uh, truly not all the oldest Americans are the wisest, uh, but then I went out uh, and conducted surveys of close to 1,500 people, all age 65 and older, but most uh, um, in their 70s and 80s and beyond, and again tried to put together their life wisdom on key issues in a way that everybody could digest easily. And, and when you distill this information, you obviously are going out and talking with these people over 65. I mean, what are, what are some typical questions that you're going to ask them to sort of get the, the wisdom that you're, you're trying to get from, from the conversations? Right. And these are narrative interviews, typically, so we get a lot of detailed information. Uh, and we ask them a lot of really honest questions. It starts out by saying, as you look back over your life, uh, the oldest person I interviewed was 108 years old. So, you know, um, looking back in some cases over a century, um, what are the most important lessons you feel you've learned over the course of your life? Uh, then we get very specific. Okay, so what about child rearing? Um, what about having a happy marriage? What about work and career? Uh, and we get detailed answers on all those things. Um, and then we ask some other provocative questions like, and this is how honest we were, you've got a lot more years behind you than in front of you. How do you feel about the end of life and how do you cope with that? Uh, um, we asked, what do you know now at 80, 90, or 100 that you didn't know when you were 20? Um, and then, of course, we got mountains and mountains of data and we sifted through it to distill uh, core lessons for living that would be of interest to younger people. So, so you, your book is called 30 Lessons for Living. So I mean, is, that, is there a hierarchy of these lessons? Was there one thing everyone talked about? What was the funniest thing, the saddest thing? You know, it's a, that's a great question. And it's always a challenge when I talk about this, because you're right, in the book there were 30 lessons. And those 30 lessons were distilled down from a lot more lessons. So I thought, well, how can I best you know, tell people about this? And here's the way I'd say it. There are three or four core pieces of elder wisdom, or three, or, you know, if you talk about maybe the lens through which the oldest Americans see the world, there are a few things that almost everybody said, and from those core pockets of wisdom, a lot of other specific um, lessons emanate. So I'll say the first one that people were the most vehement about, so pounding their fists either metaphorically or really on the table can be summed up into three words. Uh, and that's that life is short, or life is really short, or life is really, really short, or as one retired engineer said, it passes by in a nanosecond. 
So this is really cool. And the older the person was, uh, the closer to 100 and beyond, uh, the more likely they were to say, um, as one, this, is, this is a direct quote, um, a 99-year-old said, I don't know what happened, because the next thing you know, you're 100. Um, and so that's you know, the idea. And they say that not to depress people, but to get younger people to make better choices. Uh, you know, it's to use your time better. And so based on this insight, their view of younger people's use of time is the way a desert tribesman would, would look at our profligate use of water. Like they can't believe that people squander it so much. Uh, so from that core insight come a bunch of other ones. Like, for example, they really argue that you should choose work for its intrinsic value and enjoyment rather than just making money, which surprised me coming from the Depression era generation. Uh, you know, they argue that uh, people should become more aware of savoring, you know, day-to-day -day experience. Uh, they argue that you should say things to people now, like while they're still here with us. Um, I'll share one more for younger people. I was really surprised to learn from the oldest Americans that one of their biggest regrets uh, is not having traveled more. Um, and even those who traveled a lot said they would have liked to have traveled more. And their idea, again, is life is too short to put things off. So I would say that's one of the core lessons that um, really comes through. Um, and can I share one more? Okay, okay, so you can. Um, the, uh, the second truly core lesson is one that's actually now quite consonant uh, with a lot of research on happiness and positive psychology and cognitive behavioral therapy. And their argument, it sounds first like a cliche, but it's that happiness is a choice and not a condition. So that, that they view young people's view of happiness could be characterized as being happy if only. I'll be happy if only I get a job, if only I get a better job, if only I find a mate, if only I lose weight, if only I gain weight. Uh, the argument from 70 and beyond is if you have that attitude in later life, you just aren't going to be happy because everybody uh, um, has a burden of chronic disease or almost everybody. Everybody's experienced loss. So what you have to learn to be is happy in spite of what happens. And many of them over and over argued that that's the one lesson they would like younger people to learn. Um, as one man told me, I just wish I'd learned this in my 30s instead of my 60s. Um, I would have had so much more time to enjoy life. Uh, so they argue, you know, like for the getting up in the morning and deciding to be um, as happy as you can. So, so I'd say that's another uh, piece of their core wisdom. I'll share one last one. I think it's very important for younger people. I'd say one of the major findings in all these studies uh, is that old age is much better than you think it's going to be. That, that unless you have dementia, which takes you down a very different pathway, people tend to be very happy to have enjoyed old age, uh, especially the 90-year-olds and beyond would say that they feel clearer, they feel freer, they feel they have less responsibility, they understand their priorities better. Um, a lot of people described, you know, like life after 65, as a quest, an adventure. So I would say for me as a 58-year-old worry about who worries about what's next, uh, the field looks pretty good, you know? Uh, th that they're generally um, living sort of interesting and adventurous lives. So I think that we're much too worried about aging. I think you've certainly got a real treat as the person who went out and spoke to all these folks and your team and putting this together and distilling it for the book. But t tell me this much. We all have grandparents and older aunts and we know, of, you know the older greatest generation that's still existing. Um, are young people 
connecting with the old people these days because I know that you can go to class and you can learn all sorts of subjects in class. Then you come home and there's just all this informal learning happening, mostly from kids to their parents, but what about kids to the next generation above? Um, that's also a great question. And, and it gets me on a soapbox of sorts. But our society has become much more tolerant of cultural differences. There's lots more interactions. All those same time as we become ethnically, uh, in terms of sexual orientation, in terms of gender, more egalitarian, I would argue that our society has never been as stratified by age as it is. The average person has no friends or almost no close personal friends who are more than 10 years older or 10 years younger than they are. The only way younger people today encounter older people is in their families and sometimes in churches. And this is dramatically different from any previous period of history. You know, as I like to say, it's only been in the last 100 or 75 years that people went to anyone other than the oldest person they knew for advice about living. So we've, we've broken what's a critically important bond. And where I get on my soapbox is that it's so valuable for them to share advice and so valuable for the rest of us. So I do argue that families um, around a holiday table, it's a different experience to ask, you know, grandpa's experiences in World War II but then they ask, what did you learn from those? So what kind of wisdom can I take away? I, I encourage young couples to go talk to the oldest married couple they know and ask them how it worked along those lines. And I would come to schools in particular, and I have one expression that I feel like one of those people um, who's in a bad dream and you're shouting and no one can hear you. And the expression I would say to people is, they're still here. So a teacher is, is doing a segment on World War II, which to most people now seems like, you know, the Peloponnesian War. And I want to yell at them, you know, uh, the people who fought in that war, they're still here. You can actually go and talk to them. Um, doing a thing on the Great Depression, rise of the labor movement, uh, those people are still here. Uh, you know, you're studying English history and your kids are watching Downton Abbey. Um, um, you could go over to England and talk to a 95-year-old who was in service in one of the great houses. I mean, we act like these people aren't here anymore. And they are an unbelievable educational opportunity. Another example is I've been doing interviews um, in the South Bronx. There are senior centers that are fully Spanish-speaking or Chinese-speaking for kids learning languages. Why aren't they there? I mean, it, it's, it's again that this age segregation as it comes to young people's experiences of historical events, there have never been this many centenarians. So you want to know about the Dust Bowl. Uh, you know, you want to know, and I've talked to centenarians who can talk in great detail about uh, their discussions with their grandparents about uh, the Civil War. So you have people living, who have living memory of many conversations with people who fought in the Civil War. You know, we should be exploiting this group and uh, they aren't going to be here much longer. So there were uh, 6 million veterans of World War II alive in the year 2000. It's now about 500,000. And in six or seven years, they'll all effectively be gone. So now's the time to take advantage of this. So that's my argument there for people who want to bring this into education. Uh, it's an unbelievable resource that people are not doing effectively. I'm really glad you're on that soapbox proclaiming that. Uh, to, to those students or those people listening who may not have grandparents or who may not know as many old people, what is a good sort of way to get engaged with the sort of elder community, even if you have no so direct relationship? 
there are a lot of places in which you can do this. There are, for folks who are teachers or who are involved in this, there are good intergenerational programs that, that, that bring young people together with older people. There are excellent volunteer programs. So almost every office for the aging in a county or in an area uh, has visitation programs in which people can go and talk to people. And again, almost all assisted living facilities do. But I would also add, it's the older person down the street. I mean, I would imagine tons of students living all around the Boston area walk past assisted living and retirement communities and nursing homes every day. We act like they don't exist, and yet you could involve yourself in them. And other people, friends and friends of parents and that sort of thing, almost everybody who, well, now I can think I can say this, of the thousand plus people that we've interviewed, every single person has greatly enjoyed it, has thought it was a terrific experience and it's very useful for them. And we use younger interviewers and students as well. And they found it profoundly important. Actually, one of them took an old person's advice about love and marriage and decided to break off a six-year relationship that wasn't going anywhere. So, you know, you've got some good things like this happening. Wow. Well, actually, he might not have thought it was so great, but yeah. she thought it was good. Well, we won't, we won't name any names That's for right. those two. But, uh, Carl, last question. Uh, as someone who just self-disclosed at 58 years old, uh, and having read through all of this and, and being the sort of expert on the wise American experience, um, before you started jumping into this research, um, how has your own personal opinions changed on how you would answer this question, say, 10 or 20 years from now? Yeah. You know, it's very interesting to think about. And I'm often asked, how do I think this cohort of baby boomers are going to look back on their life? And, you know, I think there are things that happen after you live enough years that either develop, that probably developmentally are almost close to universals, so that regardless of whether it was a young older person or a very old one, also true by race and ethnicity, a lot of these core lessons were really very similar. So I would anticipate myself, and already at 58, you begin to realize, you know, you catch a whiff of life not being as long as you thought it was, of having to use your time more wisely, of placing more value on people and experiences over things, which is, by the way, a core of elder wisdom. I think people my age start to get a sense of it. So it's possible that we're talking about almost a perennial wisdom here. Uh, you know, I really hope too, and this maybe isn't exactly your question, but I do hope that, uh, you know, the findings of this study and others like it do help to reduce this anxiety about aging that's so profound. And the idea of treating aging as a disease, which uh, the baby boomers seem to be embracing, um, rather than as a natural process that has a lot of good things about it. So I think uh, that's another message. I hope I'm one of the wisest Americans when I get there. It, it seems a little hard to believe. I think so. I think you, know? you definitely will be. As a 29-year-old, you got there me all excited about being 70. Well, just think at 29, you know, remember, uh, that's, uh, you know, Two-fifths uh, two of your life is basically done, so you better really be thinking about it. I know. It. I'm going to try and enjoy it and definitely enjoy it a lot more after having chatted with you. Carl Pilmer, the director of the Cornell Institute for Translational Research of Aging and the author of the great book. If you don't go buy this now, you're crazy. 30 Lessons for Living, Tried and True Advice from the Wisest Americans. Thank you so much for being on the EdCast. Oh, thanks for having me. It's been a lot of fun. This has been the Harvard EdCast, a production of the Harvard Graduate School of Education. I'm your host, Matt Weber. Thank you kindly for listening.
the Harvard Graduate School of Education, working at the nexus of practice, policy, and research.